Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Pretty much the only way to refer to it here. It is a power grab by the World Health Organization. Last week or two weeks ago, it might have been the World Health Assembly was, as the name suggests, assembled in Geneva, Switzerland. And they were talking about all these sorts of things that on the surface sound nice. They sound good. They sound like the sorts of things that we are all going to get behind. They want to just facilitate movement around the world. Well, that's good. Who doesn't like traveling? They want to talk about all of the ins and outs of making life better or better protect citizens. And as we've heard time and time again over the last several years, when something is for your protection, it generally comes at a cost, a cost to your mobility rights, a cost to your speech rights, a cost to your ability to make your own decisions as a citizen. And to be honest, whatever you think of the COVID hysteria that has dominated much of the world for much of the last three years, I would hope that everyone could kind of agree with the fact that the World Health Organization has not been a credible voice on this or on anything. It was great when their focus was on preventing malaria in the developing world, but now their focus is preventing mobility everywhere in the world. This organization that would capitulate literally and figuratively to China, that would, uh, you you know, literally hang up on a Taiwanese reporter that dares to ask about Taiwan's inclusion in the World Health Organization, which in fairness, if I were Taiwan, I wouldn't be pushing for at this point. And an organization that believes it should be the sole decision maker on all of these things that affect the individual decisions that should belong to individual people. But increasingly, we have governments that are abdicating their obligation to their citizens, and I would say their national sovereignty, to the World Health Organization. So it's been curious that as the global leaders were talking all about this stuff in Geneva, there was very little mainstream media attention. There was very little attention at all. I, I should say, first and foremost, I had been looking into going to Geneva to cover it myself, but when I looked at the agenda for the meetings and I looked at the documents, a lot of the stuff that people were interested in wasn't appearing there. There wasn't a lot of talk on the agenda about the global pandemic treaty that's coming into force next year, hopefully. There wasn't a lot of discussion about global vaccine passports, but the joke was on me because all of these things were discussed. They just didn't want to draw attention to them. Well, I'm glad that one woman who was there to shine a light on this is with us today. Michelle Bachman, former U.S. Congresswoman, former Republican presidential candidate, and now the Dean of the School of Government at Regent University joins me. She was in the belly of the beast. And more importantly, uh, she's also my cruise mate on the Mark Stein Cruises uh, <laughs> last couple of years. And uh, we're going to be uh, sailing again in a few weeks time. Uh, Michelle, it is great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. So good to be with you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on today. So let's just start with why you went there, because I, I would imagine that you were probably not a popular voice there as someone who uh, is speaking out against a lot of the very things that these people have been pushing for with, sadly, a fair bit of success the last few years. Well, I wanted to go because of how consequential this meeting is. I, I, these kind of meetings drive me crazy. I have no interest in being in meetings, gobbledygook, let's have a bigger and better bureaucracy. But this is more than just changing a bureaucracy of the subset of the United Nation dealing with healthcare. That's what this is. 
The United Nations healthcare arm is called the World Health Organization. They've always been an advisory only body. And so countries had the ability to just reject whatever they said or adopt it if they thought this was a good thing. And it was fairly a fairly inconsequential organization. You can see the good altruistic purpose for it. If there's an area in the world that needs help, nations of the world can band together to try and help that area. That's all good. But now this is a malevolent plan to take the World Health Organization and supercharge it to the global surveillance system, the global tracking system, uh, the global tracing system of all people on earth. And we had that not only in Geneva, but an announcement was made yesterday, Andrew, from the European Commission. Basically, in Brussels and the European Union, they made an announcement together with the World Health Organization that the World Health Organization would adopt the global digital passports that have been created in Brussels for the use of the 80 nations in the European Union. But now the World Health Organization is going to take that example of a global digital passport where everyone has a digital ID on their phone and they've got a QR code and then will be tracked and traced by all of that. That announcement was made yesterday. This is very curious to me because at the G20 last November, the health minister of Indonesia made this very casual offhand remark at the, at the G20 that the top G20 nations have gotten together. We've all decided we're going to have global digital passports. They will be put forth by the World Health Organization. We'll adopt amendments in May in Geneva. And we're just going to go ahead and have this surveillance. Well, it didn't happen in Geneva. And so they waited till after all of the votes were taken, if they took any votes. They didn't take any votes on the proposed 307 amendments to the international health rules. They didn't take any votes on the global pandemic treaty. They waited till about a week after the whole shebang was over. And then they announced in a press release, oh, by the way, we're going to empower wow. the World Health Organization. Now they're going to be the ones in charge of this digital healthcare passport and we will be, and they'll be the ones in the process of tracking and tracing and surveilling the rest of us and giving permission if we can get on a public conveyance like a plane and go somewhere while they also call the shots on what, literally what vaccines we have to have and boosters and whatever they come up with. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that timeline because I, I was just saying in my, my intro on this segment that I looked at the agenda and ultimately decided it wasn't going to be worth going because the things they were talking about on the agenda were not the things that we're talking about now. And as I said, I mean, foolish on my part because ultimately this was exactly the purpose. But you're right that they do it in this way where I have to assume that the public agenda was taking place alongside this parallel agenda where these folks were all talking behind closed doors and all agreeing to what then gets announced two weeks later that no one voted on, was not subject to scrutiny, people could not really question it about. And this is really the story of the WHO, is it not? That, you know, they say they're this democratic body, the product of states, but really all the action seems to take place outside of that democratic forum. Oh, it does. You're right. We're living in a post-democratic environment. That's what the WHO is. They despise the issue of democracy and of the delegates that were there. As a matter of fact, it was 194 nations, essentially all nations on earth who are members of the WHO. 
And they were all like a bunch of bobblehead dolls. Every single one of the delegates were reading off of basically the same script. They used the word urgent, inclusion, equity. In other words, we're gonna have outcome-based socialized medicine for the world, a concept known as universal health. So socialized medicine for the world, everybody gets the same level of healthcare. And so all these little poorer nations think, great, this will be wonderful. We'll all get American style healthcare. What they don't realize is that healthcare is about to be downgraded, particularly in the West, and it'll be outcome-based. So no one is getting high quality healthcare, except for the John Kerry's of the world and the elites of the world who will have their own healthcare system. And as a matter of fact, that was one of the shocking things to me. You're right. Uh, the, the main event didn't happen in, in uh, uh, conferences A or B or the plenary sessions. Where the real rubber hit the road were in these strategic roundtables, kind of optional meetings. But they clearly laid out their timeline, their content, mm -hmm. their strategy. And uh, they talked about the 307 amendments to the international health rules. The fellow in charge of passing them is Dr. Abdullah Asiri. And he said, well, during the next pandemic, and they all talked about the next pandemic. Remember, it was 100 years from the Spanish flu until COVID. But they're talking about the next pandemic. Oh, and they talk about it as though it's like coming out next oh. week. I mean, they, they oh, got it, excited about monkeypox because they thought they had like another thing that they could get involved in. Yeah, no, exactly. And Dr. Asiri said, you know, we can't, with the next pandemic, we can't use the old international health rules. We have to have new, bold, strong health rules because the problem with the last pandemic was civil liberties. People had too many civil liberties. So we've got to diminish and take away people's civil liberties. It's, you can find this, you can go to who.int, click on 76 World Health Assembly, and then look at the strategic roundtables, the very first one on Monday, and you too can hear Dr. Siri say, the problem is too many civil liberties, and we got, got to get rid of them. One of the amendments does just that. They scratch out the words in the international health rules, um, human freedom, human dignity, protection of civil liberties, that's gone. This is a post-democratic world. All they care about is empowering the World Health Organization. So it really is the global Gestapo is probably a terrible word, but uh, the global police, if you will, for healthcare. They call the shots, not the individual nation states anymore on healthcare de decisions or the ability to call an emergency. Remember, in, in the United States, for instance, we, we lived under emergency powers for three years. Yeah. Emergency powers were only recently lifted May 11th of 2023. This would give the right to dictate emergency powers to the World Health Organization, and then they can virtually do anything they want. Let me ask you, Michelle, why countries are not more resistant to this because I, I mean theoretically a country could do what the united states was going to do had donald trump been re-elected which is withdraw from the who entirely they have that right but what we saw was countries increasingly abdicating their own decision making to the who i mean we also saw corporations do that i mean if you were uh, to have a conversation about covid on youtube youtube is going to throw up a misinformation label and they're going to say uh you know you violated what the world health organization 
organization sets out as being best practices. So why were countries doing this? Because surely individual nation states realize that this is not in their best interest to give this much power to an unelected non-doctor bureaucrat, that uh, Tedros Adhanom guy. Well, it's a few things, Andrew. We all know that the Communist Party of China has global reach and global ambitions, and they've been, with their Belt and Road Initiative, buying off Latin American countries, South American mm -hmm. countries, African countries. So they go in. Well, even and some say, European countries. The, the Belt European and Road is global sure. now, yeah. It, it is. It's a global effort. And they will say, well, we'll, we'll pay for this airport for you. We'll pay for this highway for you. We will uh, take care of this infrastructure with you. You just sign here on the dotted line for your loan, wink, wink, and we'll put this in for you. Well, a lot of these countries are used to loan forgiveness. The United States, for instance, has done a lot of loan forgiveness. China isn't quite there. They're not the ones who are going to do the loan no. forgiveness. So the Number one uh, entity that calls the shots at the World Health Organization is the Communist Party of China. And so this is something that they want because this is the Chinese system. This is the uh, Chinese social credit system. It is how China controls their own people. So now this system that China has in place, this digital surveillance, is exactly what's being implemented through the WHO, only it's meant for all nations globally. Why would the United States do this? Joe Biden was the lead aggressor a year ago trying to introduce 29 amendments to completely pivot the purpose of the WHO away from being an advisory only body to be an, a, a, a regulatory and enforcement body when it came to health emergencies. So that was last year. Then Botswana and a few African nations objected. So we got a reprieve for a year but we really didn't because behind the scenes, they were putting all of this into place. And then this year when I went, I fully expected that they would pass these amendments and pass the global pandemic treaty. It was clear from day one, they were not going to pass it. They were gonna wait until 2024, but that's a head fake, Andrew, mm. because one week after they ended the World Health Assembly, they had a press conference yesterday, or they issued a press release, and announced that the WHO would take over the global digital passport. And that's really all you need for effectively global governance or global surveillance, because if the WHO controls the terms and the enforcement, they really are creating a platform for global governance. And they're doing it through the global digital passport because you're not traveling, you're not getting on a plane. You're not able to do things you were used to doing unless your QR code is up to date and, and approved by the WHO. Yeah, and the, the way they couch it in all of these things is about being for your convenience. They, they, they basically say that you do this and it's going to make it a little bit more helpful. You know, the airline that I travel with more often than not, they've done this digital ID pilot project where when you log in, they say, oh, if you'd like, you can do a facial scan on your phone and then you can actually board the airplane more conveniently because we'll just take a picture of your face there and that will open the gate. And, and it's like, I, I'm looking at this and I, I'm saying, first off, the volunteer 
voluntary never stays voluntary. So this little like yeah. thing you can try if you want is going to become mandatory in you know six months' time. But also, when you trade away things in the name of convenience, you will end up realizing that it had nothing to do with that. That was just PR. And, and that's the whole thing with these global vaccine passports. We shouldn't be making it easy for states and IOs like the WHO to standardize this stuff. Well, this is really serious, Andrew. We're, uh, people need to understand how far down the road this is. Mm -hmm. Global socialized medicine isn't pretty. And that's what they plan. Universal health being global socialized medicine. The criterion for healthcare decisions is a concept known as one health. And they had a di diagram. And the diagram includes man, animals, the environment. And so when you look into it, the healthcare criterion is man is worth no more, is no more valuable than an animal. Man is no more valuable than a lump of dirt. So it's essentially man equals a cockroach, each equals a lump of dirt. But in so the final just, I, I have to jump in there. So for Canadians <laughs> that deal with wait times, now we have to wait behind a tree for our surgery, basically. Well, basically, because now at this point, the, uh, John Kerry made an appearance at this uh, World Health Assembly, and both Dr. Tedros Gebracious and John Kerry said that, you know, we had focused on infectious diseases. Well, yeah, three years, COVID-19, we'd focused on infectious diseases, but now we're going to turn away from that. Now we're going to pivot, and we're going to focus on climate change. And really, here's the bottom line. These climate change people have been desperate to, to put a control system into place, effectively a global government, on the basis of climate change. Nobody bought it. For 60 or 70 no. years, nobody cared. They didn't buy it. But after COVID, these climate change people saw how effective you could control people globally through healthcare. So on day two of the strategic roundtable, John Kerry comes in. And he says, you know, I didn't realize that, that healthcare is really driven by climate change. I had no idea until my daughter told me. And so Dr. Tedros Gebracious said the same thing. Yeah, we're gonna pivot away from infectious diseases. Our number one priority now at World Health is climate change. And that's what John Kerry said. So now wow. the number one factor for the WHO will be, can we keep the Earth's temperature at rising no more than 1.5 degrees? So in that case, the lump of dirt equals a cockroach equals mankind. What that says is the lump of dirt is going to win every time. So whatever it is that the elites who control the World Health Organization want, they will make the decisions. It's not up to the 194 nations anymore. It's up to these elites because in the global pandemic treaty, they create this little group of elites called like the council of the parties or the commission of the parties, mm -hmm. something like that. And they irrigate to themselves perpetual rulemaking authority. They never have to meet again for the World Health Assembly. This little uh, commission on the parties will meet with perpetual authority and they'll just create the rules to give the WHO more power and more power and more power. And the sick thing is that led by Joe Biden in the United States, all these nations are willingly, voluntarily giving up their sovereignty over healthcare decision-making. It is a fatal, ridiculous, tragic decision.
And so, you know, you may have a global audience. I hope you do, Andrew, because people in other countries, people in Canada, this is the time now to wake up mm -hmm. and realize we're very far down the road with this thing. Because now the World Health Organization is calling the shots for the EU. And they're already announcing they're going to call the shots for all of the other nations that join in on this global digital passport. And the ability to travel is contained in that. Our health records will be contained in it. Most likely our digital currency will be contained in it. Perhaps even the right to buy and sell will be contained in it. It's extremely serious and it's how you can control people and it's already off the ground. And yesterday they made the announcement that the WHO was controlling this without a vote. They just grabbed the power. You know, if I were the leader of an African medical group, I'd be very angry that uh, no one cares about the HIV outbreak anymore. No one cares about the malaria outbreak, that they all care about, you know, shutting down oil refineries in Alberta and West Virginia or wherever they are. Uh, Michelle Bachman, I'm so glad you went there when no one else in the world was interested in covering this. It's uh, wonderful to see you again. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. All right, that is former presidential candidate Michelle Bachman. As I said, my cruise mate on the Mark Stein cruise, which I know a few folks are uh, going to be coming along. That's just in a few weeks' time. So when I'm away for a couple of weeks in a little while, you'll know it's because I'm uh, singing some duet with Michelle Bachman up in the crow's nest, which you think I'm joking actually happened last time. And hopefully there's no video of it. Not because she was bad, because I was. Uh, we are going to talk about this a little bit more. And I think in the context uh, that we were talking about with climate there, it is a perfect segue into this other discussion. We know that Canada has committed itself, as have many countries around the world, to this idea of net zero, which means we are supposedly uh, going to get down to net zero in our carbon emissions by, uh, the number keeps changing, 2035, 2030, I think it's supposed to be next week or something. Uh, if you give them enough time, they just keep moving it closer and closer. And the way we get there is always the key. It's one thing to just set a target and set a date on a calendar and say net zero by X time on X day of X year. It's another thing when you talk about what that actually means on the ground. And we see no shortage of quite radical proposals put forward in the name of achieving net zero. And most of them end up coming down to that idea of a just transition, of just transitioning our economy away from one that involves oil and gas without any real alternative proposed. Well, one that we have talked about, which has been proposed by folks in the oil and gas sector, is this idea of carbon capture. Now, I am not going to insult you by uh, describing probably poorly the scientific basis of it, but carbon capture is essentially this idea of not ceasing the production of things that result in carbon emissions, but rather finding ways to harness and capture that carbon, those carbon emissions, and doing so in a way that they still contribute to the overall goal of reducing emissions. So uh, let's talk about this in a bit of context, because there is a little bit of criticism of carbon capture, and some of it was put forward in a recent piece that was co-authored by a gentleman who joins me now, Dr. Kenneth Green, who is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Uh, Kenneth, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Good to be with you. 
Now, I admit not being a scientist, I've bought into some of the hype on carbon capture because it's kind of proposed by conservative politicians, by people in the oil and gas sector as being this market-friendly way of achieving the government's goals, which if you accept the goals or at the very least are, are not optimistic that those goals are going anywhere, it's a, night, it's a better alternative than, say, just outlawing the industry, which is, I think, where a lot of the activists want. But you're a bit of a skeptic. Yes, I am. It's uh, and I, I'd love to get back to the other topic you were talking about, which is uh, all the environmental measures that are coming on have the same pattern of implementation that you can actually understand them by looking at how they're implemented rather than what they're supposed to do. But back on carbon capture and storage, I am a skeptic of this. I, I, I view it as, and I discuss, I discuss it as a fig leaf that's appealing to many, many people. First of all, there is a little grain of truth, the a nugget of truth in there, which is oil companies have been using the idea of taking carbon dioxide re-injecting it into old wells and old fields to push up more oil and gas. They've been doing that. That's carbon storage part. They've been doing that for decades, and it works well. And so there's a small reality there, which is somebody can say, look, they've taken many, many tons of CO2 and put it into the ground, and, and it stays there, and it's, so it's technologically feasible. Um, but it's a fig leaf because, really, it's not feasible to ca capture carbon dioxide emissions from power plants or from agriculture, or from any other source, capture them, bind them chemically, store them somewhere underground, at any kind of scale that would have any impact at all on global greenhouse gas emissions, or air concentrations, or warming, or anything else. And so, but but it's a fig leaf because governments, as you said, right wing government, conservative governments get to say, we have an alternative to your socialist net zero 2050 plan, uh, right, which is Technology made by good old-fashioned private Canadian companies, carbon capture and storage is one of those things. So, so they love it because it's a good fig leaf for them. The industry loves it because they get to say, even though they know they really can't reduce emissions very much anymore because of by efficiencies, they've, they've, they've plumbed the depths of how efficient they can be, and they're way efficient, mm -hmm. right? But they've hit the limits on that. So it's a fig leaf for them to say, we, listen, we get it, we, we hear it, you don't want us emitting carbon dioxide. So in the air, so we'll do this carbon capture and storage thing, and but so now let us keep operating, let us stay in business, right? So they like it. The environmentalist groups like it because it's a fig leaf for them that when they get to a negotiation where companies are saying and have proven that a proposed environmental plan is completely unaffordable and they'll simply have to go out of business, the environmentalists can say, "We'll give you this little loophole of you can pretend that carbon capture and storage is going to work and that we're going to actually let you go ahead and do it." Uh, so that you can to, to take away your ability to claim that you're going out of business, but they really never have any intention of allowing the kind of environmental disruption it would take to do carbon capture and storage. So it, it's sort of a universal fig leaf. Everybody loves it, but nobody believes it's actually going to happen. Um, and and uh, there's with good reason, it's never going to happen. Now, does your skepticism extend to kind of related phenomena like carbon recycling, these other things that we also hear about as being ways to just reduce uh, the carbon in the atmosphere without reducing it at source? Well, we, yes. I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it skepticism. It's, in this case, it's really simply uh, an understanding of physics, right? <laughs> carbon dioxide, the best way to understand carbon dioxide, which you breathe out every time you exhale, is it's a waste gas. That means there's no energy inherent in it. It's a thermal, a stable chemical that really has no energy inherent in it that you can, you can exploit. So to do anything with it, you have to pump energy in to trap it, to bind it, to split it apart in order to do anything with it. 
And that means the very idea that you're going to somehow use that to reduce your energy production is silly, right? It, it, you're actually going to have to pump more energy in to, to, to bind CO2 than to leave it alone. And so, yeah, I'm generally skeptical of anything that claims to be taking CO2 and making anything useful out of it because it is essentially a planetary waste which has no energy potential for exploiting, uh, is mostly inert, it's chemically inert. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I'm generally dubious, not to say skeptical, but I'm scientifically and engineering dubious of those kind of claims. So what, what would be a, a better policy then, if I can just put you on the spot there, uh, or is it basically challenging the premise that we need to go after it this way in the first place? Well, I, I think I think so. A, a better policy. That's a, that's a big question. I hope you got a couple of hours. But but <laughs> um, a, a better policy. Um, I think a better policy is is uh, moving our focus away from controlling the global thermostat by indirect control of gas emissions we can barely measure well, much less control. That being greenhouse gases and CO two, and we should shift our focus to asking if the climate is warming or cooling, or is more variable than we ever thought it was, which we know, how can we make ourselves as societies more adaptive, more resilient, and better able to deal with whatever climate future eventuates, right? It happens to us. And we can do a lot of that with conventional engineering, conventional economics. Um, we don't have to be using, invoking speculative technologies to do that. Sea level rise, countries, uh, the Netherlands and others have dealt with rising sea levels and sea levels above their land decades and centuries. Uh, the Romans dealt with moving massive amounts of water from areas that had, had water to areas that didn't have water. So we can deal with drought. We can move things around. We can harden areas. California's earthquake damage. I grew up in California. My first earthquake experience, 1969. I was eight years old, nine years old. Uh, the uh, Silmar earthquake destroyed massive amounts of the San Fernando Valley. By today's standards, an earthquake much stronger than that, hundreds of times stronger than that, would not do anywhere close to the level of damage that was done before because we learn. Engineering, technology, we do learn. And so we could be addressing the risks of climate change, flooding, drought, heat waves, uh, cold spells, whatever you want to call it, through conventional technology, locally, globally as well. Um, but instead, the world, for reasons I won't, can't get into, I'd love to, but uh, for political reasons, has chosen this laser focus on controlling the greenhouse gases and explicitly doing so only through redistribution of wealth. That's the part I would get to on a whole program, which is when you dig down into every program and you can ask, what's the root, uh, what's the root thing that, that in this program the, the government will not do without? It's the component that says we're going to take the money from these people and give it to our constituents who will vote for us, who like our agenda. And so, um, well, and just to add to that, it, that's also baked in even at the global level as well. It's, you know, within countries like Canada, it's redistribution of absolutely. wealth. And on the global scale, it's redistribution of wealth from Canada to Tuvalu or something. Well, it has been since the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The, yeah. the very first treaty ever signed created the principle that developed countries would go first, that developed countries would fund the transition for the developing countries by giving them, giving being the operative term, technologies and money, massive wealth transfers in order for them to build out their, their, their uh, energy systems and things without producing greenhouse gas emissions. That, that, that was actually the central operating principle of the very first climate agreement. And it has stayed the central operating principle of every climate agreement ever since, regardless of the fact that China 
moved from developing country to developed and is the, by far the biggest greenhouse gas emitter in the world and will be over the over time overwhelmingly the world's largest contributor to the to, to the increase of greenhouse gases around the world it's still based the, the Paris accord the previous UN accords are all based the central operating principle is redistribution of global wealth there is a, an aspect to this that you touched on a, a couple of answers ago about the difficulty in even measuring objectively and, and accurately uh, emissions. Um, and I, I think also global temperature is one I've seen some criticism about. So, you know, we pin so much on those two metrics, the idea of, you know, global temperature. Right now we've, you know, got to get uh, to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels is the goal. But uh, measuring global temperature is not as ironclad an objective as uh, the UN likes to say, and nor is the measurement of admissions. No, and it's funny you should mention that, but we have a study coming out at the Fraser Institute in, oh, in the next uh, couple of weeks or a month. One oh, of I'm mine, excited. <laughs> uh, comparing, comparing whether we should be using measurements of the climate or models, computer models of the climate in order to make our decisions about what policies to implement with regard to climate change. So you can look for that, Fraser Institute, uh, www.fraserinstitute.com. Now they'll love me uh, even more, which is good. <laughs> and um, But back to your, to your question, I mean, Yes, measurement of climate is a problem that you can't just stick a thermometer into the atmosphere and, and wave it around to get the temperature of the Earth any more than you can get the actual temperature of a room you're in. If you think about the room you're in, right, it's warmer toward the ceiling, it's colder toward the floor, near the air conditioning vents, it's colder still. Over by the window, it's warm. How would you compute just the temperature of your room? Well, you'd ha it'd be a huge exercise dividing your room into little squares, taking in that temperature at the center of each square, doing a spatial average, and try to do that for the globe. So, yes, humility is definitely um, required in, in asking the question, can we know the Earth's average temperature of the atmosphere, the average temperature of the, of the Earth's atmosphere? Uh, on the other hand, the modeling, the question of can we model it with a computer is even more absurd, right? So... It is true that temperature measurements are, I mean, I, I would not want to depend upon them for some sort of industrial process that had to be tightly controlled, like making chips. I wouldn't just say that level of measurement would be good enough for me, but it's better than simply running a computer model that looks like a video game and saying, wow, in this one, in this scenario, the RCP 8.5, uh, the world gets super hot and zombies take over. Okay, well, yeah, we'll go with that one. So um, well, measuring, this measuring is, is imperfect, that, but better. The, the famous hockey stick graph, which I think it was, was it Paul Martin that mailed out a copy to like every Canadian household? And it's been the subject of, you know, vociferous debate and, and even litigation on that. But but again, I mean, we've we've seen to go back to the COVID question, the perils of modeling, which, uh, you know, the, the, what you get out of it is no better. And in some cases, worse is worse than what you put into it. And I'm even more glad you mentioned that because I have a book out called The Plague of Models. That's by me, Kenneth P. Green. You can get it on Google Play. I am proudly sent by Amazon, which is not allowing works on COVID policy that are contrary to get through unless you have divine intervention or the intervention of somebody like Elon Musk in order to get your book approved. Uh, but you can get mine on Google Play, The Plague of Models. And basically, it talks about exactly this. In the 1970s, here's the thing. In the 1970s, computers got cheap and labs got expensive. And so people started replacing regulators, and regulators wanted to move really fast on regulations and rules, much faster than they could based on laboratory experiments done in traditional laboratories with scientists working on liquid wet chemistry and biology and things. So models increasingly took over as evidence, but they're not evidence. A model actually is, it takes away information. It doesn't give you more.
right? A picture of a supermodel doesn't tell you much about the actual person. Uh, a picture of a truck doesn't tell you that much about the actual truck. A picture of Bugs Bunny doesn't tell you anything about the, the actual behavior of rabbits, right? Those are models. And, and, and so when we moved to models and, and away from research, uh, we took this huge step into speculation, and it's across the board. It's on almost virtually any topic that we now uh, we you, you see a chart or a graph on. Any any model that, that actually projects into the future is inherently modeled, right? Since nobody has a crystal mm. ball, so all of these things saying by 2050 we're going to do this. By 2050 our emissions are going to go like this. By 2050 the temperature is going to go like that. By 2050 this is going to happen. That's going to happen. All of that is completely speculative based on assumptions about the world. There's, there's no data in it. it it's, right, it's virtually a data-free exercise. And so uh, we have to be very wary of anything based on modeling. As you said, COVID being a case in point. Curiously, as people will notice in my book, uh, people are blaming the wrong models for, for the COVID, the problem with COVID. The initial models of, of how lethal it was were more accurate than you'd think. But the models suggesting that the measures like lockdowns, masks, social distancing, that those things would work, those models were horrible. And mm -hmm. those models were relied upon for the for the governments to say, yeah, we want to do these crackdowns because this model says this will flatten the curve, right? As Trudeau would say, plank the curve. He had to get cutesy with the whole planking thing because you know he did that when he first ran for office. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the whole plank the curve, flatten the curve thing was based on modeling that that said that these measures um, of masking, distancing, staying at home, closing schools would slow the spread of COVID. Even though historically we knew that the, the evidence from all previous infectious diseases in recorded it, it, where, where there is evidence, knew, we knew those would not work. We knew those would not work. So uh, that, that's the, the COVID scandal part, which, again, you can read about. In, yeah. Uh, and just, you know, I remember an episode of the West Wing a while ago where, you know, the president was sitting with a couple of economists and asking them for their predictions of what was going to happen. And, you know, one says, you know, we're going to, you know, the economy is going to get better. One says we're going to go to a recession. The third says one, we're going to hold. And he's like, two of you are going to look very stupid in six months time, which I think is a pretty good way of, of summing up, uh, you know, how unscientific some of these uh, so-called scientific uh, measures are. Well, it's a fascinating uh, piece and a fascinating topic. And I look forward to the ones that are uh, coming down the pipeline, uh, especially as you've uh, been able to tease some stuff I didn't even know about that's coming up. Dr. Kenneth Green, Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you today. All right. Thanks very much. I didn't realize when I started off on the show today that uh, there would be such continuity from the first topic to the second topic. But as we were discussing with Michelle and, and then with, with Kenneth, the uh, reality is the COVID playbook is now becoming the climate playbook. And uh, one of the things I, I should have brought this up with Michelle in the U.S. and specifically its military history for the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, you hear this term mission creep, which is basically when the mission just creeps from its stated objective objective to something else over time. And World Health Organization, uh, Politburo mission creep is insane. And I would say public health mission creep in general. It used to be that public health offices were telling you, uh, you know what, you should wear a condom so you don't uh, pass chlamydia around, or they were saying you should get your flu shot every year so you don't get the flu. And it was a fairly safe, stable, predictable message that you'd get time and time again. And I, 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 as soon as I say that, I know there are going to be people saying the flu shot's not safe. I'm, the point I'm make, making is that public health really was an afterthought for many, many years. And the World Health Organization was a, an afterthought for many, many years. You didn't need to think about it. Then they got a taste of power. 
The World Health Organization, the public health bureaucrats, they got a taste of power that they've never had in their lives before, and they do not want to let go of it. So it is no secret that there's been this public healthification of pretty much everything since then. All of a sudden, climate is now a public health issue. The one that you see, and the World Health Organization literally uses this word, an infodemic when they believe that information, the flow of information, should be treated the way a virulent disease is. And that's why they now think that misinformation is a new pandemic in need of regulations. You need to flatten the curve of misinformation, by which they mean information that runs contrary to their own edicts and proclamations, even though their own edicts and proclamations run contrary to their edicts and proclamations from three, four, five months earlier. So all of a sudden, yeah, you have to be more worried about it. I would love to go back to not having to think about it. I would love to have to go back. I would love to be able to go back to not even knowing the name of my local medical officer of health. But you don't get that luxury. And you look at some of them that were uh, getting hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, and pro for providing some just insane recommendations. The one up in Peel region that said if you have a sick child, you should lock them in your bedroom, in their bedroom, basically. Uh, and this stuff was entirely normalized in the COVID era. People saying don't have unvaccinated relatives over for Thanksgiving dinner, for Christmas dinner. This is what the public health bureaucracy brought us. And now this level of power, this level of intrusion, this level of control is coming in the name of flattening the climate curve. So you better be warned. Thanks to Michelle Bachman and Kenneth Green for coming on the show and sharing what, again, I thought were going to be unrelated insights, but ended up uh, weaving a common thread. So we always enjoy when we get to have some continuity on the show. Uh, that does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.